0: Who gets to decide a Liberty based podcast
1: that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society, drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. Well, hello, hello everybody. And welcome to another episode of who gets to decide this is Seth Martin, your host, happy you're here. Glad you're listening. Thank you for joining. Well, we had a, you know, independence day holiday and, um, uh, for most of us, that was a three-day weekend. I'm sure there's a ton of us out there that uh, didn't have off, I know, because I went to some places on Independence Day, and there were some places open. So for those of you that had to work, thank you for your service, uh, but I'm, I'm not happy that you didn't get the day off. Um, well, look, you know the economy is on everybody's mind. There's no doubt about it. People are worried about their jobs. There's talk of recession. Inflation is the highest it's been in a long time, and you know what's going to happen is on is on the edge of everybody's mind. You know what that's the question: what is going to happen? And um, I think one of the things that's important to talk about uh, because we don't really know the future. Okay, but like the title of the program today says, "There's no free lunches." Um, there's no free lunch and there's also no free money. Okay. And I think we've become accustomed to thinking that somehow the Fed is wise and knows how to pull the right levers in the economy. And, um, you know, but for the Fed and the, these wise overlords, you know, we would be, you know, digging around in the, in the ground for, you know, worms to eat or something. And so, I, I, I want to try to um, talk about what what the government has been doing since really 2008, um, and I'm not going to go year by year, I'm just going to paint it with a, a broad brush, but I want, I want to, to try to use this uh, discussion between Chamath uh, Palapatiya. I think that's how you say his name, and a guy named David Sachs, they, they were talking on a podcast and, and, you know, Chama is a very brilliant, uh, uh, wall street guy, real estate guy, uh, trader. And, um, I think he really nails it, you know, and, uh, not just, not just what has happened, but the consequences of what has happened and how that might play out for the next two to three years. And so with that backdrop, I want to, you know, have a little fun and comment on that. Uh, this is a very serious subject. I don't want to make light of it, but um, it's, it's uh, you know, it, it's interesting to kind of critique something like MMT, for example, modern, modern monetary theory, which these people basically, these people that believe in mon- modern monetary theory believe that, you know the fed is just an accounting ledger and uh, you know deposits are it's it's just a it's a you know deductions out of this account and deposits into this account and you can spend any amount of money that you want i mean this is literally their opinion uh as long as you have the ability to uh pay for what you spend in your own currency and you have a and you have a currency that's in high demand which we do because we have the world's reserve currency. So in other words, what modern monetary theory doesn't say is that, is that you can just do, you know, print money from any country. You have to be a country like the United States. Um, and I'm not even sure you can do it in Europe, uh, although they've been able to do it thus far. But we've spent, you know, since 2008, uh, to quote-unquote save us from the, from the financial collapse uh, the Fed essentially printed uh, trillions and trillions of dollars and bought up bonds and other assets, what they call assets, which are some, some of these assets are mortgages, mortgage-backed securities, and other assets are just treasuries, you know, U.S. treasuries and other governments' treasuries. And so this is called uh, monetizing the debt. And, and the reason it's called that is because that money has to come from somewhere. And so what we do is we basically create credit, and then the Fed spends that money on these troubled assets or these uh, toxic assets, as they were calling them in 2008. And so this created an influx of capital into the, um, into the economy. Now, just to kind of give you an idea how much capital, so the Federal Reserve was created in 1913 uh, by an act of Congress. And so from 1913 to 2008, or 2007, let's say, uh, the, the entire amount of money and credit created by the Federal Reserve was about $900 billion, so almost a trillion dollars. From 2008 until now, the Fed has created roughly $13.5 trillion in credit and money in our economy. And the global economy has is, is created roughly $30 trillion since that time. And, and this is, uh, the, the theory was, hey, we're going to do this to kind of smooth out the bumps, right? But really, you know, money, the thing that we all trade with, it doesn't really do anything for production or create jobs or anything like that. It's just, it's just... Um, more dollars chasing the same number of goods right so um, what what really creates wealth in a society is when you produce stuff whatever that stuff is and you produce so much stuff that you have a surplus of stuff and you can sell it to other countries other people that's that's really what creates wealth so just just printing money and and giving that money uh, to governments or people doesn't create wealth. Now, it does allow the government to go into the market and distort the market in an enormous way, right? Because the, the government then is using that money that it created from nothing. In other words, the government didn't produce anything useful for the economy. It just went in to the economy and took the resources with printed money that it deemed that it needed. And so this creates a huge distortion in the economy, and you're going to hear Chamath talk about this. And so, what I want to do is just play his his discussion with David Sachs, and I'll stop along the way and, and kind of fill in the blanks, and we'll talk a little bit about it. And I think it's I think it's very interesting, but I but I think you know use it also as a warning uh, that we are headed for a very difficult time in the economy, um, and also the financial markets. I mean, we could have um some serious uh, turmoil in the financial markets um if what he's talking about is going to happen and it looks like it probably will so uh do with w- that information what you want uh, let me just state uh, state for the record that predicting the future is very very difficult and nobody knows exactly when any of this is going to happen but uh it looks like the stresses are building and it could be happening sooner rather than later.
2: The markets are in complete turmoil. Uh, SPY down 21% year to date, Dow's down 17% year to date. As Sachs has pointed out, that is not representative of what happened to growth stocks at the same time. And uh, the May CPI uh, went up and it was at 8.6. We also got the 75 basis point
1: rate hike. Okay, so after listening to the to this, it looks like I'm gonna need to define some terms. Uh, the SPY, the SPY, is an ETF, an exchange-traded fund for the S&P 500. Uh, that's what he's talking about, the SPY down 21%. He's basically saying the S&P 500 is down 21%. The other thing he mentions is that growth stocks are not down by that much. Now, what he's trying to point out there, if you're not, if you're not familiar with financial markets, he's what he's talking about is a divergence. So when you have the broad market um let's say, going in one direction, and you have something which is considered a relatively safe asset going in a different direction, that's called a divergence. And what what that's signifying is that money is rolling out of riskier assets and into, quote unquote, safer assets. Now, um, one of the things you have to realize about financial markets is people that manage large sums of money can never really just put their money in cash. So the, the money has to go into something else. It can't just go from a mutual fund like you can into cash. That's just not possible because they have too much money and um, it, it's just, it would crash the market altogether, which would be like cutting your nose off to spot your face. So they always move the money into other things. And that's why uh, you hear about things like rotation and stuff like that. So that's what he's talking about there. Now, the other thing he's talking about is 75 basis points. That is a term that's used to talk about interest rates. So 75 basis points is three, qu- three quarters, excuse me, of a percent. So 100 basis points would be 1%. So 75 basis points is three quarters of a percent. And that was the most recent Fed tweak of the overnight Fed funds rate the, the one interest rate that they control, which has to do with how much money uh, banks lend to one another on an overnight basis. That's, that's really all that is. It doesn't have anything to do with your mortgage. It doesn't have anything to do with your car loans. It doesn't really have anything to do with people, you know, citizens in general. It only has to do with what, how the, how, uh, the money that the feds loan to banks and the money that the banks loan to one another,
0: The thing that you have to do before you talk about what is happening now, I think it's probably useful to go back and you have to really start at the end of the great financial crisis. And the reason is, there was a bunch of people coming out of the GFC who confused what the US government and some European governments were doing. At the time, there was the risk of a huge financial contagion. And so the US stepped in and the Federal Reserve started to use their balance sheet to buy toxic assets, right? And the ECB did that, and I think Japan did that as well. Anyways, a bunch of banks did it. I mean, a a bunch of governments did it.
1: He keeps using these acronyms that I'm going to have to define. He talks about GFC, and that's the global financial community. And he's just basically recapping the financial crisis, what the Fed did and what other central banks did around the world to deal with the contagion that was brought on by uh, the mortgage crisis in this country. So, just real quick, what ha- what happened here was, uh, and the best way to do it is to kind of contrast it with the way we used to do things. So, w- when you used to buy a house, you would get a loan from a bank, and that mortgage would sit, the actual paperwork would sit in the bank in the bank manager's file cabinet. Okay, and you would actually pay that bank back your your, uh, your print, your principal payments plus interest. Well, now what we do is we have securitization. Okay. So you have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. You've probably heard of these, these, these entities, these, what we used to call government, uh, sponsored entities. And these, these entities, what they do is they buy those mortgages and they lump them together with other mortgages in what's called a securitization or a mortgage-backed security. And then the idea is banks could buy and sell these mortgage-backed securities to manage their portfolio of, of risk or loans. Now, um, there's a lot of financial innovation around this stuff, okay? So what, what then happened is that banks themselves started to package these mortgage-backed securities in what they called tranches. And a tranche is just a is just a grouping that has a certain risk value to it, okay? And so they would they would they would add these they would mix all these mortgages up. Some of them would be triple A, some of them would be triple B, some of them would be uh, uh, you know riskier debt. Uh, you might remember the term subprime uh, mortgages. Subprime mortgages were mortgages that were created uh, for riskier borrowers, people with uh, arms, adjustable rate mortgages, or people that had, you know, poor credit. And what happened was the banks created these collections of MBSs, mortgage-backed securities, and they they grouped a bunch of them together, thousands of them in something they called uh, collateralized debt obligations. And the theory was, you know, that it would be diversified and therefore wouldn't be risky. But what happened is when house prices started going down in 2006, 2007, you know, these adjustable rate mortgages hit, uh, people's payments became too high, and they defaulted on the loans, just left the keys on the front door. And this created a snowball effect that uh, eventually culminated into the Great Recession, you know, the financial crisis and the and then the Great Recession. So he's going back all the way to that point to kind of recap what not just governments in this country did, but around the globe to, quote-unquote, sure up the banking system.
0: And then there was this body of pseudoscientific economists who coined this thing called modern monetary theory – which basically said, hey, you can keep printing money and introducing it into the economy to smooth things out and to actually drive long-term growth. And it turns out that a bunch of government officials fell for it. And if you fast forward to 2022, so 14 years later, you know, governments around the world had printed something to the tune of about 30, 35 odd trillion dollars of money into the economy that should have never been there. So the thing to remember is like, we have not necessarily just been obfuscating true supply demand in the last six or eight months when we've been talking about a recession or inflation. We've been actually doing it since 2008.
1: Yeah, so the Fed and other central banks have been creating credit and money in the economy for a long time. And these, uh, like he said, these people, these government officials fell for this, which is interesting, I think, because you know one one of the things you learn as a kid. You know your parents tell you. You know you want a candy bar or something at the grocery store. Well, money doesn't grow on trees. You know every kid hears that, right? But you know somehow our governments and and not just not just the United States. I mean, like he said, Japan and uh, the European Central Bank. Somehow these people that run these governments think that well maybe money doesn't grow on trees but it can be created by the printing press and there's no consequences. You know, there's no, there's no downside to this. And, you know, like I said, forget about the downside of just creating credit. What about, what about the things that you use it for? You know, the the interventions that happen in the marketplace because they're government friendly, you know, government spent billions, hundreds of billions of dollars promoting windmills and solar energy, and they're still doing it. And this is, this is what, what made it all possible is this, this modern monetary theory, this, uh, um, QE quantitative easing. But essentially what it is, is it's creating money from nothing and then using it, uh, as a tool of the government to buy influence, um, buy what it wants from the market without having to produce anything or contribute to the market. So this is this is what we've been doing as a as a global community and what's happening, what you're seeing is the very leading edge of what what we've what we're reaping from that behavior cuz there is, there are no free lunches. There is no free money. There's only what you produce and then what you get paid for what you produce, but you have, to, you have to pay for things for what you individually produce. In other words, you cannot, not on a large scale anyway, you cannot pay uh, for things that are produced in the economy without, um, with, with printed money, because it, it creates a huge distortion in the economy. I mean, to the point where there could actually be people working in jobs they're really not even real jobs. Okay, I know that sounds crazy, but all this is going to get worked out, and it's going to cause one hell of a mess that we're all going to have to live through. But it's important that we identify this problem now, because once we're in the midst of it, and the panic sets in, people are going to be clamoring for the government to do something. And what we need to do is we need to resist that, okay? We need to let the market fix itself or else, you know, this is going to go on forever and ever. We're going to have these, these booms that are artificial that only help the rich and the politically connected and the people that can borrow money from banks. And the, the real economy, the people that work in the real economy, suffer. Their, their standard of living suffers. Uh, their their wealth is inflated away. Their savings are inflated away. And so we've, we've got to put a stop to this once and for all.
0: It's just that it's been building up in the system. So one of the things that we have to realize is that all of that money somehow needs to get destroyed in some way, shape, or form if the true economic equilibrium is meant to be found. What is true supply? What is true demand in the absence of government sloshing money around Trying to prop up things that should not be propped up, or buying votes, or all the grifts that these folks have engaged in in the last, you know, decade and a half, have to get undone. So that's the backdrop.
1: Well, he explained it so much better than I did, and of course, that's why he makes the big bucks. That's why he's rich, and I'm not. (laughs) But um, yeah, it all has to be undone. Um, You know, he talks about money being destroyed. And I maybe have said this on this program before, but you know, if all the debts everywhere either defaulted or got paid back, there would be no money in the economy. And that's because <clears throat> the very first dollar uh, that exists in the economy was borrowed into existence, and consequently, every there, every dollar thereafter was borrowed into existence. So this is the nature of our economy. But the point I that that, that he makes that I think is super critical and often overlooked when you hear people talking about financial systems, is the distortions, the, the, the use of this money to direct the market in particular ways that are not good for consumers. And he talks about it. He talks about it in terms of all these grifts. He's talking about grifting, you know, which is what the government does. The government sets up a toll booth in front of some economic activity, and then basically holds out its hand while businesses pass by. That's grifting. That's what he's talking about. And that's what our government does, and that's what other governments around the world do, especially uh, around the financial systems, because they regulate it, and they control it. They control the purse. They can borrow and spend, according to constitutions around the world.
0: So if you think about taking $30 trillion out of the global economy, you know you're talking about almost you know i think it's 85 trillion is the world gdp so like you know it's 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 almost half of an entire year's worth of global gdp it's going to take 3 years probably of the slow meticulous you know running off of money you know not reintroducing new money so it seems like we're at the beginning of the beginning of something that's going to be long and drawn out
1: it actually could be longer than that now in in real terms okay now i'm not saying we're not ever going to have a boom economy again, or anything like that. But in terms of real money, and, and a good way to look at real money is look at gold. For example, if you look at if you look at gold today um, in the stock market, basically it takes twenty ounces of gold to buy the stock market today. In two thousand, it took forty ounces of gold. So what does that mean? That means the value of the stock market in terms of gold is half of what it was in 2000. Even though the stock market itself is much, much higher than it was in 2000, its its value in real terms is worth half. And this is going to be very shocking to people. People are going to go, what is he talking about? I mean, I've made $600,000 over the last five years or whatever, you know, you've made your 401k. Yeah, but it buys half of what it used to in 2000. That's the point. So your standard of living has been cut by fifty percent, even though you own, and that's assuming you have the same amount of wealth that you had in two thousand. If you had, if you've doubled your wealth since two thousand, well then you're, you know, you're better off than you were in two thousand in terms of what you can buy in the economy. But the vast majority of people are not. The vast majority of people are actually worse off than they were in two thousand.
0: Now that's, that's separate budget. from, and that's separate from whether we're in a recession or not. That's just the bear market that we're in. Right. And so you have to look at asset prices today as a microcosm of a much larger trend that has to be about fake money pushing asset prices up and now taking all that fake money out and finding out what the real price of something is. And I just don't think that takes six months. So for all the people that were, you know, fingers crossed, hoping that this would be the end of it. Fed raises 75. We're done with this. They're going to raise 75 more. I just think that's not how it's probably going to be. It's going to take, you know, 24, 36 months. That may mean the bottom doesn't happen for another 18 months. So I think it's a, we're, in, we're in for a lot of choppy um, market action.
1: So I agree with Chomet that, you know, that the bear market could last 24, 36 months, meaning, you know, the the, the total downward slide of stocks could last, you know, three years. But the economic damage <clears throat> could take a lot longer to uh, untangle. And uh, because, you know, there's distortions, there's dislocations. Uh, if you're working in a sector, I mean, how long does it take to get tr- to be trained to do something different? Or how long is it going to take to for employers to want to hire you because you're, you're not trained in their particular line of work? So there's there's a lot to to maybe undo as a result of all this financial damage that was done to our economy. And it's not entirely apparent just yet. Three asset
2: bubbles clearly all um, you know, being impacted. We had stocks. Looks like that story was pretty violent. Uh, then we had crypto. This last two or three uh, weeks have been absolutely insane in terms of that asset bubble. And now Uh, record high inventories for homes, record um, sales are now dipping below the average of the last 20 years. And um, we're seeing uh, mortgage origination just absolutely get crushed. 6% mortgages just a couple of months ago, it was 2.x for some folks. So when you look at those three asset bubbles, do you buy chamats? Hey, we're going to see even more deprecation in these for another 18 months, possibly? Or do you think we've taken such crazy action. This has come down so violently that we're now bouncing along the bottom, bouncing along the bottom or 18 months of more pain.
1: There's another bubble that he didn't mention. And it's probably the biggest one. Um, and that is the bubble in the bond market. The bond market is where all this is created. This is where all the money is created. All the credit is created. And, uh, he alluded to the fact, um, you know, mortgages at 6%, but you know, it's not impossible for mortgages to go to 15% or 20%. I mean, what's that going to do to the housing market? You know, so we, we don't know, we don't have a crystal ball, but, but the point is the bond market really, when he's talking about housing and the effects of housing, he's talking about the bond market. Um, there's, there, it is a ginormous market of assets. Just think about all the homes out there. And, you know, a, a huge percentage of them uh, people make monthly payments on. And so this could, this uh, uh, bond market collapse could lead to a wave of bank failures, um, um, defaults on loans, uh, chapter 11 filings, bankruptcy filings with companies. I mean, it could cause all kinds of havoc. And uh, no, we're not bumping along the bottom. We're just getting started. <clears throat> and this is a a, a very large macroeconomic situation that we're going to unwind, and it's it could it, it, it well in the short run it'll only last about three years, but the the economic uh, repair could take fifty years to fix. I mean, that's that's what we're looking at here. It's not it's not just three years and we're over and back to you know going up and to the right. This is going to take a long time. Because it's, there's real market distortion damage here. There are people and businesses in lines of production that are not wanted by the market or won't be necessary when things tighten up a little bit. And so just think about all the people working in that, all those businesses in those lines of business. And I don't know what they are. I just know there's lines of businesses out there that will not exist 10 years from now. And those people that are all working in those lines of businesses, lines of business, won't be working in those lines of business. They'll have to go figure out something else to do, and this will take a long, long, long time to fix.
3: Uh, Milton Friedman once said that there's nothing quite so permanent as a temporary government program. The temporary government program was quantitative easing. We had this great recession of 2008 that could have turned into a depression. They broke the glass in case of emergency. They started this. QE, which is basically the government intervening to buy bonds in the market. They had never done that before. And they loaded up their balance sheet. The crazy thing is that program was still continuing until last year. Why? I mean, it was like on cruise control. And so last year, it was it was
0: it was was continuing until last month. And countries like Europe are still doing it. Nine percent inflation in Europe and they're still buying bonds.
3: Right. So you go back to last year, the Fed bought 54 percent of the government's debt, despite the fact that the economy was growing at like 5% GDP, that it was bouncing back really strongly from COVID, that you had the stock market at all-time highs, and yet they were still intervening with this massive QE, and then when we got the the surprise 5.1% inflation print last summer, they didn't stop QE till the end of Q1. The reason I wanted to
1: play this clip and as long as it was, and I apologize, but I wanted I wanted you to get the sense of that these people don't know what they're doing. There's, there's a lot of, a lot of people out there saying the Fed does know what it's doing. It's, it's the wise overlords managing our economy. They don't actually know what they're doing. And, um, it's, it's very, it's It's going to prove to be very damaging what they've done. And of course, they're going to come out unscathed probably. They're going to, you know, well, you can't blame us. We were just trying to do our best and, by the way, we need a bigger budget, and you know this kind of stuff. I mean, that's typically what happens with government. Government screws up royally, and they actually get more more taxpayer money. So, I just wanted to play this because, you know, this is this is a monumental mistake. I, it's not even a mistake. It's it's a it was intentional. I mean, Ber, uh, Ben Bernanke started this, and he basically uh, his his education or his. He was informed, I guess, by his study of the Great Depression, and that the problem with the Great Depression is that we didn't uh, we didn't print off enough money to stave off the depression, and that was his reading of what happened in uh, the 1930s following the stock market crash of 1929. So, you know, uh, and of course that's entirely wrong. There's we can talk about that some other time, but um um it's just you know if you if you're not grounded in the right understanding of the way the economy works and 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 the money role in the economy then then you can't make the right decisions it's impossible it's like it's like being in space and trying to figure out which way is up you just there's no way to know without some reference on the horizon
3: so you're right they kept basically printing money and it's still going on and that's created massive distortions in the economy now So the Fed, I would say, is the number one culprit here, and Jay Powell is the number one culprit. But the number two culprit is the Biden administration. And I think Biden did three things very early on in the first few months of his presidency to effectively tank his presidency. Number one, he canceled our energy independence on his first day in office, canceling the Keystone Pipeline and making it much harder to drill. And of course, uh, energy inflation is the number one factor in this sort of overall inflation. Number two, he pushed through that last $2 trillion of stimulus on straight party lines, the ARP, the American Rescue Plan, after Larry Summers said, economists in his own party said, this is going to create inflation, don't do it. And then the third thing is, and no one really talks about this, is that Biden could have used diplomacy in 2021 to basically find an off-ramp to this Ukraine crisis before it turned into a full-fledged war.
1: You know, I agree with him here uh, at laying the fault at the Fed, but he's... He starts with Jay Powell. No, this started with Ben Bernanke and then Janet Yellen and then Jay Powell. And Jay Powell, you know, has actually tried to stop it a couple of times. And just politically, it's difficult. You know, they say the Fed is not politically, you know, it's not subject to the political whims. But it is. It very much so is. Um, The other thing is I I don't really agree. I mean, look, the Biden administration has been horrible. There's no doubt about that. But the Keystone Pipeline and some of the energy policy, that's not really what's leading to these problems. The problems are created by the Fed, and the distortions he's talking about are created by the creation of credit and money in the economy without, without any kind of signal from um, the structure of production that, that, those, that the things that the, that the government went in and bought – And a good example is stuff like solar panels or, or, you know, um, things, uh, you know, that are produced by Raytheon or or General Dynamics. These things aren't things that consumers use. These create ginormous distortions in our economy. And there are entire lines of people working in these sectors, like I said before, and it's all going to have to be unwound. And it's going to be messy. Um, The last thing he mentions is just... um, the fiscal stimulus following, uh, the COVID pandemic, you know, the two or three trillion dollars, whatever it was that we printed and just sent people checks in the mail. Um, the PPP programs, all this stuff, this was just, uh, this, this is what causing is what is causing the inflation. And then, and then this war, you know, this war, the war is not causing inflation, but we talked about this, that, that, uh, that the U S government, could have offered Putin an off-ramp and handled this thing with diplomacy. But instead, you know, he decided to push Putin into a corner and force him to kill, you know, hundreds, tens of thousands of people, which will ultimately be hundreds of thousands of people, and disrupt the entire economic system, world trade, on the globe. I mean, it's just a, 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 a complete disaster. Um uh, not to mention the humanitarian disaster that's happening in Ukraine. I mean, just the global disaster. There's humanity, humanitarian um, catastrophes happening in South Sudan. I mean, people are starving right now because money that, that used to be used to feed these poor people in Africa is now being redirected away from those places because there's not enough food or the food is just not going to where it normally goes. I mean, this, the whole thing is just a huge disaster. And so, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to put this program out to, to create a warning, you know, give you some warning, because uh, most people are going to lose uh, some or all of their money, um, depending on how vigilant they are. And, you know, it's just going to be a colossal disaster. And, you know, I, I just want um, listeners... Uh, I don't have a ton of listeners, but the ones I do have, I, I want you to be on guard uh, and and just pick a place. You know, pick a place where you're not willing to lose any more of your money. That's that's the only advice I can give you. Uh, I don't think there's going to be a place to hide. I mean, you could go into gold, but uh, materials are going to go down too. What happens in a bear market, everybody, is once you once things start to go down, people have to sell in order to cover other obligations, like loans that they have and things of that nature. And so selling begets more selling. And eventually they come for everything. Everything goes down in a big bear market. And so, you know, there's really nothing to do but just kind of sit in cash. And yeah, cash is not a great investment, especially when inflation's running almost 9%. But what are you going to do? You're going to put you know, your life savings at risk to the tune of 80%. I mean, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a tough pill to swallow if you, uh, if you make it all the way through that and, uh, and live through that kind of loss. It's going to be pretty tough. I've said it before, but I think it's worth repeating because this shows about liberty and about your liberty in America. But without economic liberty, Liberty is pretty hard to come by.